When temperatures start to fall from summer's highs, people in South Louisiana get excited. Gumbo weather, it's called. Nobody wants to eat a rich soup in the middle of August heat, but in October, it's all people crave. And one of the key ingredients in many gumbos is the ground up and dried leaves of the sassafras tree, which we know as filet powder. Today, I'm walking Adrian Huff through her first pot of gumbo, and since it's Alaska, I have to make a batch of andouille to go into it. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. There aren't many dishes as iconic as gumbo that have had so much total nonsense written about them. There are fanciful origin stories, confident assertions that just about any combination of ingredients magically becomes a gumbo if you throw it all in a pot. The more you dig into the history of food, the more you find that almost all of it sits on a foundation of make-believe. Here's what we know. There's Creole gumbo from New Orleans, which is almost 100% African, with important contributions from Louisiana Native Americans and some bits from the French and Spanish. And then there's Cajun gumbo, whose precise origin is murky. Both are served over rice and share some ingredients in common, but it's much less confusing to think of them as cousins rather than siblings. New Orleans, or Creole gumbo, is named from the Bantu word for okra and derives from okra stews, still common today in Western Africa, from where the majority of enslaved Africans were stolen. It almost always begins with okra cooked down to a thick paste. Occasionally, it contains filet powder instead, in which case it's called filet gumbo. Sometimes it contains both. Sometimes it contains a roux, which is sometimes made with butter and sometimes with oil, and is cooked to various shades of brown. Often, tomatoes are involved. Its most common form involves shrimp. There's usually a pork product as well, frequently chorizo, a spicy, fresh New Orleans sausage similar to Mexican chorizo. Cajun gumbo is always based on a roux, the combination of fat and flour that was the basis of French sauce making until the 1960s. This roux is never made with butter, only with oil or lard. It's typically cooked until it's very dark, and dark roux shows up in many different Cajun dishes. Occasionally, it contains okra as well, in which case it's called okra gumbo. The two main strains of Cajun gumbo are chicken and sausage and seafood. The sausage is usually smoked. Duck, turkey, rabbit, quail, or other small game can substitute for the chicken. Unlike in New Orleans, sausage is rarely added to Cajun seafood gumbo, and it's much soupier than the more stew-like Creole dish. Why is it called gumbo then? According to various sources, the Choctaw, who used ground-up sassafras leaves in their cooking, called them combo or gumbo, and so, in a weird linguistic coincidence, two different but nevertheless related dishes both ended up with the same name. Much of the origin story is lost to history, and unlike many of my counterparts throughout the years, I'm not inclined to just make something up. So why in a show about filet am I just talking endlessly about gumbo? Filet powder is the ground-up leaves of the sassafras tree. If there's another dish in modern cookery of any cuisine that uses it, I don't know what it is. Sassafras roots and bark used to be the principal flavor in root beer, but a chemical called safrole was found to be potentially carcinogenic and banned by the FDA in the 1960s, although it is still in use as an ingredient in the manufacture of MDMA. 
The chemical is not present in significant amounts in the leaves, though, so filet powder remains available. There's a definite root beer quality to filet's flavor, something earthy and pungent that's quite unlike anything else. I tried to make gumbo in Boston once, but after an afternoon of going to grocery store after grocery store, including some specialty spice shops that had all manner of obscure ingredients, I couldn't find any filet, so I had to make something else. Without filet, Cajun gumbo is simply not complete. The English name filet derives from the French verb filet, which translates as to thread or to spin, the same root as filament. It describes the thickening action of the powder. The texture of gumbo that has been boiled after the filet is added is described as ropey or stringy. It's added at the end of cooking, usually at the table, and the surface of the gumbo gets a distinct net-like appearance and thickens a little bit. Black and white Louisianans picked it up from Native Americans who used it in a similar manner. It's not clear at all why filet powder only came to be used in Cajun and Creole gumbo and doesn't appear in any other common dish on the American table. Very little food history prior to the 19th century was written down in part because the kitchen was considered the domain of servants and housewives who couldn't possibly be doing anything interesting in there. A cross-cultural gastronomic innovation like matching the flavor and texture of dark roux to filet would get a chef at a high-end restaurant today praised in glossy food rags all across the world. But we'll never know the name of the person or people who actually did it, toiling away in some obscure kitchen down the bayou. Adrian Huff. Yes. You went to culinary school. I did. When you were in culinary school, you learned to make a roux. I did. You probably spent a lot of time learning how to make a roux. Well, maybe not that much time. It, it's really pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Except you said you, you only made a Cajun roux once. It's true. We yeah. covered the bases, you know? Sort of. Light, medium, dark. That's it. This isn't dark. No. This is like black. Yeah. Like our goal today is we're going to push this roux we want, if we, if we left it cooking for more than like a couple of more seconds, it would burn. But we're not going to do but that. But we're not going to do that. I'm going to walk you through this process. Um, ordinarily, the traditional way to do it, go ahead and turn on this stove. Crank it all the way on high. This is the weird thing about this one because the traditional way to make a black, dark Cajun roux is to do it really slow. In fact, the traditional unit of time for how you know about how long it takes is it's about the amount of time it takes to drink two beers. So it usually takes about an hour to get, to get the root of the color that you want, doing it on a real like medium-low heat. And it's much safer to do it that way, especially if you haven't ever made them before, because it's harder to burn the roux. It gives you a little bit of a cushion. So if I did this at home by myself, I should probably be taking that route. If you've never done it before, it's probably a good idea. But if you've also never done it before, you could also just put this podcast on and listen to it. Ah. And, uh, and turn it on because I'm going to walk you through like all the steps that it takes hand. because all, really all you got to do is you got to pay attention. You got to watch what's happening and what the color changes mean and how long things take. So when you're doing the hot room method and really any method, I would start with hot oil because the, the thing that takes the longest is cooking all the, the moisture out of the flour because until the flour, until the moisture is pat all out of the flour, it's not going to get any, any warmer than 212 degrees, you know? And then it'll start browning after that. The second most important thing when you're doing the when you're doing a fast roux like this 
anytime you're doing a dark roux, you want to have the, your onions chopped up beforehand, but it's especially important for this because the point of the onions is to cool down the roux so that once Ooh. it gets to a super, because we're, like I said, we're going to be like right at the point where if it cooked anymore, we'd be just about burning it. As soon as you add the onions in, the temperature falls immediately. I love this temperature game. The third thing <laughs> that's important is that as soon as you add the onions, you also turn off the heat. I've only burned my roux twice in my whole life. I've made, I don't know how many hundreds of this, and I've burned it twice. And both times, one time I added the onions and I left the fire going. It actually, there were some little like unamalgamated chunks of flour oh. that burned. Mm -hmm. The other time I just straight up burned it. So we're gonna, it happens. It does happen. So we're gonna keep looking at our oil. It's just starting to shimmer now. So we're almost at the point where we can add our flour. Okay, so what, what was the traditional ratio of flour to fat that you learned in culinary school? So one to one ratio. Yeah. And there are some people like, particularly if you're making like a roux or a gravy, you can actually use like three to two. Yeah. But in something like this, you want it to be pretty liquid because the one thing, our goal is to keep the flour suspended in the oil. If the flour starts to clump up, that's when we really run the, the risk of like a little chunk of that flour just sitting right on the bottom of the pan and then it gets hot and then it starts to burn before yeah. all the other flour. So if you see little black specks start to come in your roux, you're gonna have to throw it out. But we're not gonna do that. We're not. I have a whisk and I have a wooden spoon laid out. So I'm gonna tell you this stuff beforehand so I don't have to try to tell it to you while all the crazy stuff's happening. Thank goodness. So at the beginning, when you first add the flour, you're gonna use the whisk because the whisk is better at the wooden spoon at incorporating the flour into the oil. Breaking up all those clumps. Yes, but once we get to the point where the flour is more or less not really lumping anymore, we're gonna switch to the wooden spoon because the wooden spoon, especially the closer you get to your moment of your zero hour, it's better at keeping that flour suspended because it can get into the corners and you're gonna spend a lot of time going around the corners. I'm nervous, but I'm excited. So I'm gonna say that we're ready to go. I'm gonna get that flour, dump that flour in, grab and get the whisk out and start to whisk. Same time. Well, you just wanna, you just wanna start it immediately. Okay, and you can see it's really, it's like violently bubbling up right now. And that, once it starts to, once the bubbles all start to go away, is usually when you can start to think about switching to the wooden spoon. Because at that point, the water will all be gone and uh, it starts to become a lot easier to. I got smaller keep. bubbles. Yep. It's not gonna, once, once the bubbles all go away, it's gonna start coloring. And once it starts coloring, things will move. Again, it takes a little while. And we're gonna travel through basically several different stages of roux. So we're gonna start out, it's gonna be kind of a real light sandy color. And uh, that's like a real basic roux like you would make for like a sausage gravy or something like that, or a bechamel, you know, where it's not, you've just cooked out the flour taste a little bit and you've, you've sort of gelatinized the starches so it'll thicken things. And then as we go past that, it'll get darker sandy, darker sandy. And then after that, it'll start to move into the like wet sand and then it'll become peanut butter, and then it'll become copper penny, and then it'll become mahogany, and then it'll become milk chocolate. And milk chocolate is what we're after. It's terrifying. 
A lot of people stop at, at peanut butter because they get scared. Mm -hmm. And a lot more people stop at Copper Penny because they get scared. But you really want to push all the way through to mahogany and milk chocolate. Oh, we still got moisture in there. It's still gonna take a little bit. But as long as it's as long as it's mostly incorporated and there's no more lumps, you can switch to the wooden spoon. I'm gonna do that then. Alright. And really concentrate on the oh, edges of the pot. What was that chunk? Huh? There was a chunk? You're gonna get a, you're gonna get the occasional chunk. You got you just gotta keep stirring. Really focus on the edges of the pot. Because Good. that is where all of the that's where the chunks are really gonna wanna settle. And that's the advantage of the wooden spoon, is that you can run that spoon around the edge of the pot. Stir there? harder. It's no, really, you gotta, me. you can't stop, you gotta just keep going and. I didn't do my workout today, this is good. Let me, let me. You let me, do it. I'm not gonna do it, <laughs> I'm just gonna sort of demonstrate what I'm talking about. Is It's better to stay on the, in the outside edges. Gotcha. And then only occasionally go into the middle, because that is what's gonna, keep the chunks from happening so bad. You're gonna get some, as long as they don't burn. And the way that they're gonna burn is if they sit on the bottom for very long. You'll also notice as we go on that they will start to, to disintegrate a little bit too. The texture of these things changes quite a bit. Towards the end, once we really get, get almost there, it almost gets like a gritty sort of sandy texture that's not smooth. So here you go. So you don't have to be nervous when you do see it. No, it's not something that you want, but honestly, like every time you make one on this high heat method, you're gonna see a few little chunks. As long as they don't ever get black and burn, you'll know if they burn, you'll smell it. Yeah. And if they burn, you don't have any choice but to throw it out, there's no saving. You can't go back. The other thing that is, is really important to, to remember in doing this is uh, try to be as smooth as you can with your stirring because you know what the colloquial name for this stuff is? What's that? Cajun napalm. Oh. If it splashes on you, it actually, it'll stick to your skin and it gets insanely hot. Ooh. I'm seeing it. Mmm. See, this is where it makes me nervous. This is where I think I would be, this is where I would call it. No, well, we're, way, we're way away from where we need to be. Well, thank goodness you're here. Because. We might have to start over, actually. <laughs> I was like, I smell caramel. Yeah, I think we're going to have to. I don't think we're going to get there with this one. It's all right, it's your first one. Thank goodness. <laughs> Basically the entire reason that I learned how to make sausage is that it's really, it's impossible to get decent smoked sausage in grocery stores in Alaska. It just doesn't exist. The stuff that you can get is pretty mediocre. And uh, mediocre's not what I'm after when I'm going to make a gumbo. The best uh, substitution that I've actually found if you do wind up having to make your gumbo with grocery store sausage is uh, actually linguisa which is a Portuguese uh, smoked sausage. It's got a lot of paprika in it. It's actually not all that different from a uh, South Louisiana smoked sausage or an andouille. If you're not gonna be insane like me and make your own sausage, which is what we're doing today, linguisa works pretty well for gumbos and jambalayas and stuff like that. The grocery store, if they call it andouille or they call it like Cajun hot links or whatever. It's never that good. It's it's always really one-dimensional It's either not really very smoky or it's not very spicy or it's not either in general I've found that linguisa is if you're stuck with grocery store sausage the way to go Unfortunately, we don't have the 
culture in Alaska that you do in South Louisiana where you can, every gas station makes their own sausage and it's almost always awesome. We're not there yet. Someday, maybe. Check the pantry goes on long enough. Maybe we'll get to that day. The difference between what gets labeled on Dewey and the stuff that gets labeled smoked sausage, it's, I'm not even sure technically what the difference really is, except that typically things that are labeled on Dewey will come in a larger casing. Stuff that's called smoked sausage comes in a smaller diameter casing, more like, you know, like the stuff that we see as kielbasa or, or, you know, a regular fresh sausage. I actually grew up more with what was called smoked sausage, and I always got it from this really awesome place right outside of Iway, Louisiana, where I have a lot of family, which is not too far out outside of Lake Charles. And there's a place there called Rabbitoh Sausage Kitchen, and that is where... Like, to me, if you're from South Louisiana, like, the best smoked sausage is always the place you grew up with, and that's the one I grew up with. So, to me, that's the best. Rabbitohs. And the way that I know that, that this particular smoked sausage recipe is pretty good is that whenever I cook it, it always, the smell memory brings me back to cookouts when I was a little kid where somebody was cooking some of that. The smell just, like, instantly takes me back to there. So, that's how I knew that my recipe was at least in the ballpark. It's not as good, but it's pretty good. And, you know, pretty good is what it's gotta be sometimes. Making sausage is always the same. Trim your meat into chunks, strippy chunks. I like to, I do like to generally favor cutting my meat into strips when I'm making sausage because it feeds through the grinder a lot better. And I'm separating out the bigger chunks of fat because I want to get as close to 33% fat as I can. And with these pork shoulders, you know, you always wind up with less fat than you really want. So I'm only gonna wind up using part of the lean. I'll do something else with the rest of the lean. I'm gonna use all the fat and the, the number, the amount of fat that I have will tell me how much sausage I can make. Get out my trusty scale and you don't need me to yell at you anymore about how important scales are particularly in baking and in charcuterie and other meat productions. So I'm gonna weigh out my fat. So that is 817 grams of fat. So if I want 30%, I need twice that in lean. So that's gonna be about 1600 grams of lean. By lean, this is pork shoulder, so it's not like totally lean and the fat's not totally fat. That's 1600 and I've got maybe Maybe a half pound of meat left over, maybe a little more. I'll do something else with that. Stew it, make spaghetti sauce, or I don't know what I'm gonna do with it. So that is 1600 grams of lean and 800 grams of fat. So that's gonna get me 2400 grams of total sausage, which is what I'll do all my calculations of salt and all that stuff, which I'll do in just a minute. So now I gotta do some math and figure out exactly how much seasonings this is gonna take. And then we can run this whole thing through the grinder and mix it all up. So the basic, most important thing for all sausage is the salt amount. Smoked sausage, whatever, 1.8% is what I like. Anywhere between 1.5% and 2% salt is what you want for a standard either a fresh or a smoked sausage anything that's not a salami or like a cured sausage those have a, those are a little different and then roughly two percent spices which is what i'm doing right now i'm grinding up my proprietary blend of cajun pepper 
which is uh, just a mix of white pepper, red pepper, black pepper, and cayenne pepper in roughly equal parts. And that's because all the peppers, they all hit your mouth a little bit different. We're trying to get a little bit more of a complex flavor than just cayenne or just black pepper. You know, we want it to, we want it, we want there to be a roundness of flavor, which is something I talk about a lot, three-dimensionality of, of flavor, so that it's hitting multiple parts of your palate. And other than that, the only other uh, seasonings in this is a pretty simple sausage, really, is uh, garlic and thyme. And then the final ingredient is cure number one. And I will get to that in just a second. So for my 2,400 grams total sausage, I've got 29 grams of Cajun pepper, 43 grams of salt, which is 1.8%, 4 grams of thyme, so not very much, and 12 grams of garlic, also not a lot. The thing about this sausage is mostly supposed to be peppery and smoky. We're going to smoke it really hard, and, uh, and it should be nice and spicy, and those are the two main things that we're after, is smoky heat. And my final ingredient, which is non-negotiable for a smoked sausage which is Instacure number one, also known as Prague powder number one, also known as pink salt number one. And what this is, is a mixture of regular salt, 93.75% pure salt, 6.25% sodium nitrite, and red dye number 40 at 0.004%. The salt is to bulk it out. The red dye is to turn it pink so that you do not accidentally confuse it with regular salt. And the sodium nitrite prevents botulism. And that is the point of nitrites. Because what we're going to be doing with this sausage is we're going to smoke it. And smoking sausage entails holding it at temperatures low enough that if you did not include sodium nitrite, you would run the severe risk of... Uh, providing ideal conditions for botulism to grow. And we don't want botulism, it's deadly. It is the deadliest poison known to man. Well, maybe not known to man, but it's up there. It's botulism, botulinium toxin is extremely bad. But Jeff, you'll say, I thought sodium nitrite was bad. Well, maybe if you ate like 10 pounds of sausage a day. The proven carcinogen in nitrite and nitrate related uh, chemicals is a stuff called nitrosamine. And that is what happens when uncured nitrates are subjected to heat. So if you made, say, bacon with cure number two, which is sodium nitrate, then in theory, if you didn't, if you didn't cure it long enough and the nitrate, this is all pretty technical, but basically there's two kinds of cure. There's cure number one and cure number two. Cure number one is sodium nitrite. Nitrites are the things that actually do the work of suppressing bacteria. The other kind of cure is cure number two, and that's sodium nitrate. Nitrate is like a slower acting version. What it does is over time, it converts into nitrite. The nitrites all get used up fairly quickly in combating the bacteria. And so, over, and so the, the nitrates are like a slow release version of nitrite. That's the short version. They suppress harmful bacteria primarily botulism. Botulism, in case you didn't know, is actually named after the Latin word for sausage because that is where the toxin was first isolated. They used to use saltpeter, which is a form of sodium nitrate, but it's 
it's much less precise. You never know exactly how much you're getting. Modern cure number one and cure number two are, you know, exactly how much you're using, which is important because as with uh, most substances, for example, salt, water, alcohol, just about anything, it's deadly if you use enough of it. The science is totally well understood. Everybody knows exactly what's going on with cure number one and cure number two. But Jeff, you'll say, what about uncured sausages? I can go and I get uncured smoked sausage at the grocery store. Well, yeah, sort of. And they'll say, no nitrites, no nitrates, whatever. Well, if you look at the ingredients, what they all contain is some kind of powder. Usually it's almost always celery powder. And the reason that they do this is because celery is extremely high in nitrite. It's higher by, by pound than like any sausage that you'll ever eat. A lot of vegetables are very high in nitrite. So celery being very high in nitrites, they use it to suppress the botulism bacteria in the same way. Here's the thing, it's not as precisely regulated as cure number one. So you really don't know exactly how much nitrite you're getting. You don't know how much suppression power you're going to get. Now, presumably the big factories and stuff that are using um, celery powder instead of cure number one, presumably they are able to do the testing, but at home you're not. So you don't really know exactly how much nitrite you're getting. You know, if you grind up a bunch of your own celery and dehydrate it or whatever, you don't know how much you're getting. So you can't be, you can't guarantee that you're going to get sufficient nitrite to suppress any botulism that happens. If you're making sausage at home and you're going to smoke sauce and you're going to say, oh, well, you know, my buddy Jethro, he made some sausage and he didn't put any of that stuff in there and he's still alive. Well, yes. I mean, we've all done a lot of things and survived it that we shouldn't have. You know, we should all be dead multiple times over and we're not, but it doesn't negate the fact that you're running a huge risk of a really nasty death if you decide you're not going to put any pink salt in your smoked sausage. Um, so don't do it. So I've got the heat cranked up. I might drop it a little bit. Starting with the whisk. Tight circles, big circles. Tight circles, big circles. Wax on, wax off. The other way people do this is uh, in the oven. Oh. They'll put it. They'll put it in the oven at like 350 or something, and just let it sit there for a long time. That's smart because then it almost bakes evenly. If you yeah, never... it works all right. Um, and if you're making large batches, like a lot of restaurants will do it that way, particularly the ones that aren't super anal about their gumbo, mm. because it, it's harder to get. It's harder to get the temperature or the color exactly right. Like this. Doing it on the stovetop is the way to get it the most precise color. So when you're really going for a dark, a dark roux, it's best to do it on the stovetop. Can you continuously watch it? Yeah, well, the, the critical thing is the way to stop the roux cooking, and it'll actually get a little bit darker after you add the onions, but not very much. But the main way to control it is by when you add the onions. So if you do it in the oven, you don't have to worry really about burning it, um, but you also lose that ability to, because usually when people do it in the oven, they'll do a big batch and then they'll save it. Without losing any, you can buy this stuff in jars. A lot of people don't, and you can buy like different colors, you know, for like how, oh. how dark you want it. And uh, a lot of people use that nowadays because they don't want to sit there and make a roux. 
Which well, is understandable. I understand. Well, I mean, my mom does it that way now. <laughs> She's like, I'm not going to stand around doing a, making a roux anymore. Because it's the same thing. I mean, it's flour and oil, so it doesn't matter. But you can't, like, control what kind of oil you use, you know? So if you want to use, like, lard, you can't use lard. Or right. if you want to use, like, duck fat, which makes a really awesome gumbo. I bet. <laughs> um... But you can't use butter, and the reason you can't use butter, well, you could use clarified butter. The reason you can't use butter is because butter salads burn at a much lower temperature than you're taking this gumbo. Typically, like, one of the distinctions between New Orleans cooking and Cajun cooking, because the dark black roux is a, Cajuns are really the only ones that do it. New Orleans roux tend to be butter. They tend to use butter, and they tend to go, they'll go dark. You can, get, you can take a butter roux to, like, a real light peanut butter, but you can't go much past that. So in New Orleans, where they tend to use butter more traditionally, they tend to their roux tend not to be as dark. Cajun cooking is the only ones that use this. Is, it's kind of what their their thing is, you know, is this is this black roux. I see what my problem is. What's that? You have a full body whisk motion going on. Yeah. I was just trying to keep it together. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is this is something you want to get into it. You know, you got to kind of throw yourself into it. It's not yeah. just your forearms that are gonna work out, your calves too, don't forget. <laughs> yeah, your shoulders, I mean, you gotta put you gotta put quite a bit into it, you know? So you can see like, you know, there's definitely some chunks that are a little darker, but it's not as pervasive as it was during the ones that you were doing, because I'm really, really being super aggressive in how I'm stirring and how I'm mixing, and I'm really pushing the stuff around. You know, like I say, you wanna do it smooth, and it's gotta be so you're not splashing everywhere, but you do have to put a little bit of force into it because that's how you keep those clumps breaking apart. And now you can see, now we're in peanut butter, right? Look at that. Mm -hmm. And see, this was, the, this was the stage that you were having some trouble with and this was where you were really starting to burn. And you can see that I do have a few little chunks that are a little darker, but they're not black. When they're little like that though, they'll break up. Yeah, exactly. Compared to mine, they were a little bigger. Yeah, and there's not that many of them, you know? Way there's bigger. only a few of the little dark ones. And now you can see, now we're back at that mud stage, but it's much more homogenous than it was when you were doing it. Because now we're, now we're going past peanut butter, and now we're starting to edge into copper penny. And so we're getting close. So once I start hitting this stage where it starts to look like mud or like wet clay, now I've picked up my uh, onions and I'm ready to go. And as soon as I think that I get to the point where I want to be, I'm going to drop my onions in and I'm going to turn off. I'm going to turn the burner off and I'm just about there. I'm into mahogany now. So just another probably 15, 20 seconds and I'm going to drop these onions in. There, right there. Turn off the burner. Stir. And they're, they're throwing off huge amounts of steam and they're also throwing off the single best smell in the kitchen as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and always make sure to keep stirring right here because there is some residual heat on the bottom of the pan and you want to cool this whole roux down as much as you possibly can. And my heat, again, my heat's off. I'll turn it back on once everything's kind of settled down a little bit. I'm gonna let these onions cook and then after they've cooked for 10 minutes, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna add my, the rest of the trinity, which is celery and bell pepper. So once they've sort of, now you can hear that they've kind of, uh, they're not real bubbling real hard anymore. So I'm gonna turn the heat back on. But this time, Turn it on very low. So what's happening now is that as the onion juices, as they get cooked out of the onions, now they're being absorbed by all that flour. 
So they are forming the base of this whole thing. And so we're gonna let these cook for until they're nice and translucent, and then they'll they'll sweeten up, they'll have a nice sweet, but still oniony, savory flavor, and then everything else will start adding. And now we can switch because the rest of this is gonna be you. Okay. We are browning some chicken right now. So I got two chickens and we cut the breasts out because breasts and gumbo, they kind of suck because it cooks for long enough that they get kind of dry and gross. We're just gonna brown the dark meat and then we're gonna scrape up the fond. How'd you, how'd you learn how to say it in culinary school? The fond. fond. Or the fond. <laughs> the fond, hey, the hey, <laughs> the fond. Yeah, I think, I think you have to pay like $25,000 a year at culinary school before they let you call it fond. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> so we'll be scraping up the fond with some, uh, another shortcut, which is I've got some nice Swanson's chicken stock, which I use all the time because, ah. I mean, sometimes I have it together to have chicken stock on hand all the time, but most of the time I don't. Who does? I told you I was gonna make you do everything from here on out. You were lying. But I'm gonna go ahead, while you're busy with the chicken, I'm going to dump in the, the celery and the bell pepper, which are the other two components of the Cajun Trinity. Oh. Is that the best thing you've ever smelled? It's pretty close. Then what we're gonna do after we finish browning this is we'll just pour a little chicken stock in, just stir it up just to get the little fall and the brown bits up and then dump that right into the pot. Because we're just about at the point where all of our hard work is finished and then we can make the rice. Oh. Oh, you didn't even know we were gonna be making rice, did you? <laughs> you know, okay, so rice is the classic thing that, but there's always something that goes alongside of, of, of gumbo. At least where I am, where I'm from, because this this gumbo that we're making, this is like a central to southwest Louisiana style gumbo, because this is how this is how my mom makes it, and this is how my grandmother made it. You're telling me there's regional gumbo. With oh, big time! Yeah, every every gumbo is different, which is where I'm I'm kind of getting to, because it's really common for in for a potato salad as a side that people mm. use a lot, but there are certain regions in Louisiana where they put the potato salad in the bowl and then they pour the gumbo on top of the potato salad instead of rice. Whew. I don't know about that. Cause see, usually like, you know, you get the scoop of potato salad on the side of your bowl. Right. And then you, and so what happens is ideally the gumbo, when you get it, it's super hot. It's too hot to eat, right? So you either dip a cracker into it, like a saltine into it to get some of the flavor, or you take a, a spoonful of potato salad and you dip the potato salad in the gumbo and that sort of gives Pastrami you a nice. In your mouth. It gives you a nice like. It gives you the flavor before the the before you can eat the regular, you know, the the actual bowl. So I just added my andouille. I added garlic, and I just and I let that cook down a little bit. And now I've added the uh, the smoked sausage, and we're putting the chicken in. And at this point, I also add my a little shot of Worcestershire and a shot of Tabasco. So just so you know, I actually forgot to bring my Worcestershire and I forgot to bring my Tabasco. It's okay, you can add them at the end, but it's actually a little better, I think, to add them at the beginning. And if you don't have any any Worcestershire, you can add uh, fish sauce because it's basically, oh, yeah. it's basically Worcestershire sauce. I love making fish sauce. And make sure you put your chicken skins in because chicken skins, A, they got a ton of chicken flavor and they also have a lot of gelatin, so they'll help thicken everything. Because one of the sort of paradoxes is, 
Like New Orleans gumbos tend to be a little thicker than than Cajun gumbos. New Orleans gumbo is kind of a different dish. Most South Louisiana gumbos tend to be actually a lot thinner than people assume they're going to be. They're much closer to like a soup than yeah. like a stew. Um, and part of that is because dark roux really doesn't thicken very much. You know, it's, as roux gets darker, as you go from white, white roux to blonde roux to brown roux, the thickening power decreases. So in order to get a thick dish out of this, you'd have to use like barely any liquid at all. And there is a rice and gravy, the gravy that you make with a dark roux and just serve it over rice. It's similar to this, except it's, you just don't, you don't add very much uh, liquid to it. So it's a real thick gravy. Great, got some body to it. But gumbo, I always, some people make it where it's like really thick and I don't like it if it's too thick. I think it should be a little bit thinner. But that's just me, and there's a million different kinds of gumbo. New Orleans gumbo is pretty much always thicker because it's, it's almost always okra-based and okra thickens. And once we get all the liquid in and once we get everything going, then we'll really scrape the bottom to make sure that we've uh, incorporated everything and there's no like little chunks sticking to the side. Got in those little pockets. Yeah, because those, those, those can run the risk of burning as well. So this is what, two quarts of uh, chicken stock. It'll probably take a little more. We'll add some water, add a little more salt because you can never really have enough salt. I mean, you can. <laughs> until, yeah. You can. Until so. you get to that point. Until, you, like, until hmm. you do. <laughs> yeah. This looks beautiful. It's coming together pretty well. I'm pretty pleased. So I'm adding pink salt. The other thing that it does is to, it actually does turn the meat pink. It gives it that nice pink color. That's not why they call it pink salt. They call it pink salt because it's literally pink. So anyway, Instacure number one, I need six grams of it in order to suppress the botulism. There we go, six grams. And you do want to be careful with this stuff. If you accidentally dump a whole bunch of it in there, throw out the whole batch and start over because uh, this is another reason why you really want to use a digital scale for stuff like this because, you know, it's no joke. I mean, this stuff is, it is dangerous. You know, if you eat a big chunk of it, I mean, you're not going to be able to eat a big chunk of it because it is almost all pure salt. It's, it's you know, 93% salt or whatever. So any, if you accidentally dump a huge amount of it in there, it's going to be inedibly salty and you're not going to be able to eat it anyway, which is another part of the reason why they add it with salt. But do be careful with it. It's pretty easy to go online and find the FDA or USDA, I can't remember which one, gives maximum levels. You know, you can then calculate what the safe amount to use is because it's got to be it's got to be high enough that you're suppressing the bacteria, but it has to be low enough so that it's not toxic. And of course they, I mean, they build in huge amounts of, uh, of headroom into that. I've got my mixture all ready to go. Now I just have to grind my sausage. And for this, I'm going to grind it on a big die. It's going to be, uh, I think it's a, I think my biggest die is a three eighths of an inch. Um, you can get them even bigger than that. I kind of wish I had one because you want this, uh, this sausage should be really coarse textured and really chunky. We're not looking for hot dogs here, which is another problem that I have with a lot of the uh, grocery store sausage that passes is on Dewey, is that a lot of it is is real finely ground. It's too finely ground. Some of the real serious sausage makers down there will make their on Dewey with chopped up meat instead of ground. But man, that takes a long time. 
you got to have a customer base that appreciates that or that wants that. So I've got my uh, grinder parts are in the freezer and I'm now going to assemble my grinder and run my meat through it. After that, I'm going to let it sit overnight and I'll case it tomorrow. You can case it right away. It's not the biggest deal. It's just that uh, I feel like I feel like you get a little better distribution if you do let it sit. I've cased it the same. I've cased it immediately afterwards, dozens and dozens of times. But there's no there's no rush to. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it today. But you can do it either way. It doesn't matter. Yo yo yo! It's time for the grind. That'll only make sense to you if you watched MTV in like 1993. So for the grind, a lot of times when I'm making sausage, I'll grind my fat on a on the smallest die that I have. But in this case, for andouille, I'm gonna grind everything on the big die because I want it to have big chunks of fat, big chunks of meat. I want everything to be big and chunky. So we're going full on big die. And here I go. So people will generally say, and they're right, you want to keep everything really cold. Um, meat cold, uh, the grinder parts cold, everything really cold, and that'll help because you don't want the fat to start to melt during this process. So you need to keep everything cold. But one thing that a lot of people don't stress enough, I think, is that in order to really, what you want to do is you want to grind things as fast as you can. You know, you want to take your meat out, while it's cold, you want it to stay cold through the whole process. You want to get back into the fridge while it's still cold. You want to minimize the amount of time that the meat spins in the grinder throat, which ironically means that you want to go pretty slow with your grind. What you don't want to do really ever is use the pusher. You don't want to be mashing your meat down there because then what happens is it just sits there. It gets all compacted. It doesn't cut very well. It just turns and turns and turns and turns and turns on the worm. And while it's doing that, it's warming up and it's starting to smear. You want there to be a lot of air inside the whole machine because air keeps things cool. You know, you don't want a tube full of mashed up pork paste. You want individual chunks, let them go through, drop the next one. And the whole process will actually go a lot quicker. I always say grind slow to grind fast. It's not that, and you will get jams occasionally, particularly if you're, uh, if you're doing a regrind uh, to get a finer texture on the sausage. And then you really got to be careful because it's really easy to jam up the works. But for this one, for these big chunks like this and for on the big die, it's pretty fast. ground. Sausage is made, now it's time to mix, which is very easy. Dump the spice mixture in and knead until it's well distributed. I think I've talked about this part before. You're trying to develop the bind. So we mix until the sausage sticks to our palm and does not fall. It develops a distinctly sausage look and kind of a sausage smell. It's sort of hard to describe until you see it, but it's like 
you know, it, it starts out looking like just ground meat. And then as you develop it, as you work it between your fingers, it turns into something that looks like sausage. It gets a lot tighter and becomes much more of a unified mass. A lot more resistance when you squeeze. It's starting to really resist my hands when I pull them out. So I bet we're just about there. Pick up a nice softball size hunk, hold it upside down, and it's staying there perfectly. It's not falling back down. So I now have sausage. So I'm gonna let this sit overnight in the refrigerator. Tomorrow, thank you, rooster. Tomorrow, we will case this. And after we case it, then we'll smoke it. Casing sausage, don't seriously, seriously, don't really mess with it unless you have a piston stuffer, particularly in any quantity larger than a couple of pounds. The main difficulty with casing is air. You don't want to get a bunch of air in, a, in your sausage. And if you try to use one of the attachments that goes on a grinder, either a hand grinder or like a KitchenAid type grinder, those attachments are nothing but pain. A lot of air gets in the sausage. The, the quality is really not very good. Um, there's big air bubbles in it. It's just, it doesn't make a good sausage. If you don't have a piston stuffer, either one of the little hand horizontal ones that are real small or a vertical big one, like I have a 15 pounder, trust me, it's not gonna be real worth it for you. You're just gonna, you're just gonna suffer. But if you do have a piston stuffer, making sausage really fast. <laughs> You get it all the way down on your meat. You just push it real easy out. You can hear that's that's air coming out. The piston stuffers have little air vents on top of them. So as you compress the whole uh, surface of the sausage, the air leaks out around the side and then it escapes out of the vents. And when you load the piston stuffer, you work it real good as you pack it in there to try to get as many of the bigger air bubbles out as you can. Now I've got sausage coming out of the stuffing tube, tied off. But you just go real easy, kind of squeeze on it. So any air that comes out gets forced into the casing that's still on the tube. After you've done it a few times, you can sort of feel how fast you can go and how thick you can stuff. With a pork sausage, you can stuff pretty tight because uh, it's not gonna swell a lot when it cooks. And other than air bubbles, the only thing you gotta watch out for is weak spots in the casing, which do happen. With these thicker casings, these are 35, 38, um, hog middles. It's usually not as much of a problem with sheep casings, which are the real skinny ones like you might use to make breakfast sausage. Those tear really easily and uh, you got to be real careful. And you'll get a feel for exactly how much force any given in, uh, casing can take because natural casings like some of them, some of them will be really holy, really thin and, and really kind of a pain to case like this one that I'm particularly doing right now is real thin and I can tell if I force it too much if I overstuff it too much it's gonna want to burst on me so I gotta go real easy usually hog casings like this are thick enough that uh, and and malleable enough that they aren't they aren't a problem so with these guys if I was making proper on Dewey in in South Louisiana I'd be making them I'd be smoking them with pecan wood in a big smokehouse. I don't have that. I have a big chief, an electric smoker. That's what I got. I'm just going to smoke them for probably two, three hours. And then I almost always finish them in the oven because those big chiefs, especially one as old as mine, 
they don't get really hot enough to cook them that well. And these sausages, they need to be cooked all the way through at the end. So I'll typically smoke it for two to three uh, panfuls of smoke. And then I'll throw it in the oven, a real low oven at the end. Because you do want it to cook real slow. You don't want to cook all the fat and stuff out. I've tried to make these in the little chief and they just, they're in the big chief and they just take forever. And there's not, I don't think there's any improvement. It's not like they're better <laughs> cooking them over hardly any heat in there. You know, in a, in a real smokehouse, they would cook a little hotter and they'd cook a little quicker and they'd be nice and they'd be dry. Still better than anything you can get in the grocery store, at least here. Okay, so we're done there. Mm -hmm. We're going here. Okay, now I'm gonna have you add these four spices, which are black and white pepper, cayenne pepper, uh, thyme, and paprika. And start going. I'll tell you when to stop. All right. Come on, faster. Faster, Adrian. Faster. Come on, time is money here. That's good. We'll probably add. We'll, the, we're gonna add multiple shots of this. So <laughs> you never, you never get all the all the right spices in at once. So that's so for the cayenne. Make a nice, generous pinch. Pinch, pinch. Don't pour it. What are you doing? Come on. Pinch. That's a pinch. Yeah, you said generous pinch. Yeah, that's two pinches. That's <laughs> less. That's less than one of my pinches. Well. For for those of you listening at home, <laughs> she just poured out a little like a eighth of a teaspoon into. <laughs> into uh, her palm. Which is also referred to as a pinch. And I just pinched a pinch in my fingers. Also a pinch of thyme, an actual pinch. There you go. That's a pinch? That's a generous pinch. Damn. And thyme is a controversial ingredient. <laughs> a lot of people don't actually put it in their gumbo. But I, I like thyme in I my gumbo. I love thyme. Okay, and some paprika. It'll take a fair amount of paprika. Like okay. probably the equivalent of like at least a tablespoon of paprika, if not more. Okay. Paprika is like the unsung hero of the Cajun spice shelf because a lot of people are like, oh, it doesn't taste like anything because they have like ancient paprika that doesn't really do anything. Ooh, yeah, there you go. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I am. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll probably add more, honestly. Because the goal here, as I say, is to get just a, the little hint of spice at the end, at the back of your throat. So that's a tiny amount of spices. Like we're gonna we're gonna add more. There's stages. But you always want to. But you always want to start with less. Right. You know, because you can't take it away. You can't you take can it away. More. And the spice, the character of the spices changes mm -hmm. as it gets as it warms up and as the gumbo cooks. So it's a little easier to to judge at the end. Like I would probably have added more to begin with than you just did, but that's okay because I know, I know more or less what it's gonna wind up being. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little less afraid. I'm going to add another pinch of salt because I think it can take it. All right, let's make some rice. So, yeah, I was just going to ask, is this the type of gumbo where you put the rice within it? There is no type of gumbo where you do that. There was this cute little episode I saw and it was like, oh, it was an Instapot. That's what it was. That sounds revolting. Instapots? No, you don't, you don't, <laughs> no, no. You don't cook the rice in the gumbo. Ever. <laughs> ever. If you do that, then they'll expel you and make you go, go to Texas. I've, I've, I've literally never heard of anybody cooking their rice in their gumbo. You, it's a one-pot stop. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're gonna stop talking about this because I'm actually starting to get angry. <laughs> and I don't wanna be angry. Now, they, you do make, okay, so maybe they, maybe they thought it was jambalaya and they just called it gumbo because 
people are fast and loose with their names because jambalaya, yes, you make the jump, the rice goes in the jambalaya pot and it all gets cooked together. Yeah. So that's jambalaya, but that's not gumbo. That's different. That's a different thing. Yeah. Totally different thing. Um, <laughs> Insulting you. I'm so dis- I'm in the same sentence. I'm just so discombobulated now. I can't even remember what we were talking about. <laughs> see, this is where I like. I like to get my gumbo up to a nice boil to get. See how the the. Well, a lot of this is the chicken fat, but some of it is the the roux separating out. So good. If you don't, some people simmer their gumbo and they want the oil to stay in there a little more. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's really heavy tasting, and you can't eat very much of it. Right. You know, and like part of the thing about gumbo is you should eat a lot of it because it's yummy you know I should say about this gumbo too like you can totally use the uh, like spice mixtures you know like Tony Shasheries or whatever oh yeah I've used tons of those in the past I just typically nowadays I know which ones I like so right but you like want but there's nothing wrong with that I'm definitely more present it's very common to use to use uh, any of the any of the decent quality Cajun spice mixtures perfectly acceptable well and then if you know what you like you could use the seasoning packet and then add yeah whatever you're missing that's what i do with my taco seasoning smells like nothing i've ever smelled before really you never had gumbo i mean yes (laughs) some weird instapot gumbo that had the rice cooked yes it it was good (laughs) Oh, we're getting there now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Just about there. Just a pinch more salt. Here. The traditional garnish for just about every dish in South Louisiana, <laughs> sort of lazy about garnishes, is parsley and green onions. And then the final ingredient, which is actually the ingredient that is the featured ingredient in the show, is filet. Oh because this is literally the only dish that this particular ingredient gets used in. So if you're gonna talk about filet, you're gonna talk about gumbo. Mm-hmm. But I will initiate you into the mysteries of filet. You don't add it until the very end because if you boil filet for too long, it gets a texture that's described as ropey. Oh. Yeah. So you add it, usually like if you go to a, if you go to a restaurant in South Louisiana, they'll always put out a little bottle of filet for you. Let's use a KBBI mug. Classic. To eat our There's two. gumbo out of. And then don't start eating it yet because you gotta have filet on it. And I'll just give you a little pinch. Because it's for you to decide. Have you ever even like smelled filet? Do you know anything yeah. about filet? Nope. Sassafras tree is the root beer tree. That's where root beer was originally. Uh, that's, that was the original root. But sassafras, it's the leaves. And so okay. this is what it smells like. Oh, I like that. It's sort of difficult like, to describe. It's like human, but like sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has like a sweet sort of flavor. Make sure, hey, get, get liquid. You gotta get liquid. I did get liquid. No, you didn't get very much liquid. You gotta get you more liquid. You said get sausage. Well, I wanted you to get some sausage, yes. But, but in addition to the sausage, get lots of liquid. It's a soup, so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a beginner's training wheels <laughs> filet. So that's like just like an eighth of a teaspoon there. And I give myself a big old pinch because I love this stuff. Okay. And this is parsley and uh, green onions from my garden. So they'll be extra good. Those green onions look beautiful. Thanks. Okay, go for it. 
I, I thought I got you a spoon. Oh, it's in the rice. Because you've never had a proper gumbo before. Okay. I mix this filet in. Yeah. Okay. It's okay if you hate it. You can say you hate it. That's good. It's not as good as my mom's. I was gonna say, I don't think I can taste it that much, so I'm not too put off by it or anything. What do you mean? Really, the filet. Oh, you want I more? Like, I, I like it all together. It's pretty good. You want more? Oop, I can't it. The thing about it is, like, it's, if it's not there, you definitely, and you know, and you know it's supposed to be there, you know that it's missing because it's such a characteristic flavor. You can tell it's, by it's the like, smell. It's like earthy. It's so, you know? yeah. That's all right. Oh yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. I like that. A little more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It definitely ties it all together. Yeah. Because it's got that heat, but I'm not put off by it. Mm -hmm. I don't do spice well. Well, it's not really supposed to be spicy. It's just like I say, the goal is to get right in the back of your throat. Yeah. Right after you swallow, it just kind of hangs around for a little bit. It's not my best gumbo ever that I've ever made. It's my best gumbo that I've ever made. But it is your best gumbo that you've <laughs> ever made. High five. Yay. We all gotta start somewhere, believe me. The first the first one, I think the first one I ever made was like, oh, it was awful. I tried to make a seafood gumbo one time and it was before, I made it with, I made it with, I had some halibut and I had some salmon. But the halibut was okay, it tasted fine and I've since used halibut productively in other South Louisiana dishes. But it turns out that salmon does not work at all. <laughs> like it's revolting. And I finally figured it out one day, it's actually the salmon and the green bell pepper. The way that they interact is disgusting. Oh. It's gross. So if, if there, there are some dishes that I've been able to work into it that don't involve green bell pepper. Because you also, some people say, oh, you just sub red bell pepper. And it's not, it's not the same, you know, because yeah. green bell pepper has that like bitter sort of earthiness mm -hmm. to it that is... It's more, it's just bold. Yeah, it's not sweet like red pepper. And sometimes I will add some red pepper if I'm making stuff with Alaska seafood because it is a little sweeter. But in addition to the green pepper, it doesn't work. And that's why I can't really make salmon gumbo. I could see that. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity and dinner. <laughs> and I'm gonna send you home with some too. Good. I need an excuse why I've been here. I will say, I will say too. Put some Worcestershire and some Tabasco in it. Because mm -hmm. that's like the last. Because they're both a little bit acidic, so it actually it helps it helps round everything out a little bit. Like I noticed the absence, you know. Yeah. That's the main thing that I'm that I'm sensing that's not quite right, is that it doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. Nice job. High five. Thank you. I love introducing people to Dark Roof because it's really not. I mean, you saw, like, it was hard. The first couple of times were tough for you, but you never even seen it before. Right. But then when you watch me do it, and I can sort of talk about, you know, like, this is what you're looking for, it's not insanely difficult. But maybe, maybe don't. Maybe the takeaway from this whole show should be, ignore everything I said at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and don't make your first roux a fast, hot one. Yeah. Make your first one two cold, two cold beers. Yep. And then even if you burn the roux at the end of it, hey, at least you drank two beers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I would be able to incorporate it now, now that I know what not to do. Yeah, well, and now you know what it's supposed to look like, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted and produced by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guest was Adrian Huff. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2, by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. 
This is the first episode of the fall 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you. 